As a reminder, content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investor or potential investors in any Inovia fund. Please note that Inovia and its affiliates may also maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, visit inovia.vc. Welcome back to Inovia Sessions, your source for insights on tech entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Inovia Capital Principal Mike McGraw, broadcasting from London. Today's focus is on the tactical steps of US market entry for global startups. In this episode, we're privileged to have a conversation with Daniel Glazer, managing partner at Wilson Sonsini. As an authority on assisting European startups break into the US market, Daniel will help us break down the administrative considerations and costs associated with expanding West. If you're a startup eyeing the US market or just keen on understanding its legal intricacies, this episode is brimming with hands-on advice. So, without further delay, let's dive into the conversation with Daniel and unpack the complexities of international expansion. Before we kind of dive in, can you just give us a quick overview and background, both of yourself, and tell us a little bit more about Wilson Sonsini? Sure thing. So, so Wilson was one of the first law firms in Silicon Valley to work with tech companies back in the early 1960s when the first venture funds were formed to invest in tech companies. And our model is to work with sort of um, incorporation stage startups and scale with them up to IPO and then beyond as a public company. Probably our best example is uh, 1998, we, we incorporated Google as a company, eventually worked with them on the IPO and, and we're still close to the company today, right? And so today we're about uh, 1,200 or so lawyers, Silicon Valley headquartered, 15 offices around the United States and all the sort of major tech and life sciences hubs. And that's really the focus of the firm is that we work with tech and life sciences companies, sort of horizontally narrow and like I like to say, vertically broad, like with all the, the different areas, corporate, commercial, IP, data privacy, regulatory, etc. So I moved to the UK full time uh, in 2018, but had been sort of, you know, working with British companies and European companies for much longer than that. But in 2018, moved here full time to open the office. And today in London, we're about 40 US, UK and dual qualified US, UK corporate tech lawyers working with UK and European startups through their US life cycle, launch, scale, raise money, exit in the United States. That's fantastic. Couldn't ask for a better guest for this topic, right? I mean, funnily enough, I think you also uh, recently worked with Phil, the founder of Dice, which we also have in a different episode. So very small world out here. If we just take you know a bit of a step back, start with a 30,000 foot view. Can you please just walk me through the main administrative pillars that founders should think about as they're planning their expansion? I would say that the first thing to think about when it comes to U.S. expansion is how are you going to expand to the United States? In other words, kind of what does U.S. expansion mean to you as a company? Because it could take all different forms. It could mean I'm going to be selling remotely into the United States. I'm going to be hiring contractors in the United States. I'm going to be hiring employees in the United States. You are going to maybe move management to the U.S. and not hire anybody locally. It could mean that you're looking to partner with, let's say, a distributor or a reseller in the United States who's going to go to market for you. So that's sort of right off the bat, first thought is, okay, we're expanding to the U.S. In the context of our business in the U.K. and Europe, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, that's a great point. If we go from a, you know, relatively vanilla, we're going to get some clientele in the U.S., we're going to have some boots on the ground, say B2B business, looking to start hiring some salespeople, potentially some engineering. What are the big buckets to address when to think about that expansion? I would say the most common scenario that we see is when a company in the UK and Europe says, okay, 
we're, we're getting some initial traction in the United States. We're being pulled into the U.S. by, let's say, customer traction, user growth, and now it's time to put people on the ground. Company comes to us and says, hey, I'm going to hire my first employee in New York. I don't have anything set up in the U.S. What do we do next? So as I typically say, there's sort of five main areas that you're going to need to cover off. Legal, tax accounting, banking, business insurance, and payroll and benefits. And I'll sort of take those in turn. So legal tends to be first because the first order of business is to set up the company. Because when you're hiring U.S. employees, that's typically the bright red line of when you want to set up a separate U.S. entity. You don't want to hire U.S. employees through a European parent company for three reasons. Tax, liability, and ambiguity in employment rules. Tax, you end up creating a taxable presence of your European company in the U.S. if you hire through a European entity. You end up with a direct line of liability from the U.S. up to the deep pockets of the parent company in Europe. And you end up with ambiguity between European employment rules governing employers and U.S. employment rules governing employees. Okay, so one of the first steps is to set up a subsidiary. Do you actually see it the other way around sometimes, whereby the U.S. becomes a parent company? The only reason you would need a parent company in the U.S., and you and you know, people who are listening might have heard of the Delaware flip, as it's called, right? Delaware flip is when you create a U.S. parent company, typically to take in money from U.S. investors, which may or may not be necessary. But we'll put that to one side for now. If you're simply just hiring in the United States, then you can do that, and you probably should do that, through a U.S. subsidiary. Now, of course, there is no such thing as a, quote, U.S., end quote, subsidiary. In the U.S., you pick one of the 50 states to incorporate in, and from that company, that, that single incorporated company, you build the rest of the U.S. business. So typically, most typically what it looks like is a Delaware corporation subsidiary. Interesting. Can you explain why Delaware? The headline, Delaware reduces friction. Right? That's kind of the easiest way to remember. Delaware reduces friction. To go a level deeper than that, long ago, Delaware sort of established itself as kind of the go-to state for incorporation. It has its own dedicated, well-regarded body of corporate law. Uh, has its own courts dedicated to corporate and corporate governance disputes. It's sort of you know, efficient, cost-effective to set up in Delaware. Again, it reduces friction to set up in Delaware. I'll use the, the UK vernacular, the bog standard place to go if you're gonna set up in the, in the States. The decision to create a Delaware parent company is generally an investor-driven decision. That's sort of the way to, the way to think about that. So now you, you've got your Delaware corporation subsidiary and you're gonna hire your first employee, let's say, in the state of New York. You're going to then register to do business as a Delaware corporation operating in the state of New York. You'll let the Secretary of State's office know that now you're in Delaware, you're a Delaware corporate, now you're gonna be operating in the state of New York. And you're going to provide New York state-specific employment documents to the New York employees. And you're gonna provide two different employment documents. The first is a New York state-specific IP assignment and confidentiality agreement, which does what it says on the tin, right? And then a New York state-specific offer letter, which has the economics and the financials of the arrangement. And each time that you go to a different state and hire again for the first time, you're going to engage in those same activities over again. The final point I'll make there on the legal bits that are part of setup are employee options, right? And maybe we can do a little bit uh, deeper dive on this later, but the bottom line is, is that you'll typically want to look to extend your option plan mm -hmm. to U.S. employees. I think relative to the UK and Europe, U.S. employees tend to be fairly focused 
on what their options look like. And it is very common to provide options out of a UK or other European parent company. Yeah, definitely. There can be a lot of different views around options across the different geos. Uh, what would be the main differences to think about in this case? You'll just want to make sure that you get the appropriate valuation for the US market, which might not be the same as the valuation for your home market. And you'll also want to make sure that you set up the appropriate subplan underneath the primary plan in your parent company. One key point, just a question we often get asked, the, the, the options do not come out of the subsidiary. The options tend to come out of the, the parent company because that's where the value of, yep. the, uh, of the enterprise really lies. So on the, on the legal side, just to sort of clo- yep. close that off, there's a, there's a few other areas that are, are typically handled as part of US setup. Let's say commercial contracts, you want to make sure that you've got Americanized versions of your contract for the U.S. market. Uh, intellectual property, make sure you extend your patents and trademarks from your home market to the U.S. And data privacy, which is that um, there is no GDPR doesn't apply, of course, in the United States. But of course, there is a robust set of data privacy laws in the U.S. at both the state and to some extent at the federal level as, as well. That's fantastic. So a lot to unpack. Clearly, some people's head might be spinning a little bit, but we'll, we'll go through each one of these. What's interesting is you didn't mention, you know, legal as the first one, tax accounting, banking, business insurance, payroll and benefits. Legal being the first one, would founders usually go to the lawyer and the the law firm itself would recommend them to the right other advisors or should founders look to get these advisors in parallel and run at all fronts at the same time? Yeah, I mean, the way that we typically come across it is that we talk to companies, companies come to us and say, we're looking to set up in the US, what do we do next? Legal tends to be first because everything else kind of gears off of the company setup, right? Like the tax accounting doesn't really become necessary until you have the company. The bank account generally can't be created until you've got the company. The business insurance becomes relevant when you've got a presence, a company presence in the United States, and the payroll and benefits doesn't really become relevant until you hire the people through the entity. So. More often than not, companies will come to us first and say, I'm looking to set up, we'll help them with the company, and then we'll explain to them, okay, these are the other areas that you need to cover off, and we'll be able to kind of point them in the, the right direction for sort of startup-friendly, scale-up-friendly advisors who are used to working with UK and European companies through that that US life cycle. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned startup-friendly. Usually something that startups care a lot about would be the cost, right? And so um, can you just walk us through what that would look like in terms of kind of the setup fees and what people should have in mind when they're looking to do that expansion? I'll start by saying that the primary cost of U.S. expansion, I mean, and it really is so much greater than everything else, is the cost of employees in the United States. That depending on where you're coming from in Europe, U.S. employees could be anywhere from one and a half to four to five times the overall that you're used to paying in Europe. Because not only are the salaries higher, but you're also looking at, at paying for health insurance, right? And retirement benefits. The US you know, doesn't have universal health care in quite the same way that, that many countries in, in Europe do. You're typically looking at individuals who might be looking at bonuses or commissions as well. And then of course, the, the, the options would be typically expected. And not only is that compensation higher, but then you have to think about, okay, how do I account for providing all of this? Like, do I go out and try to find health insurance for my team of three, a retirement benefits plan for my team of three? And typically the answer is no, is that you would typically work with what's called a professional employer organization or a PEO. It's an outsourced retirement benefits, health insurance and and payroll provider. But that typically can cost anywhere from fifteen dollars to $20,000 or so per person per year. So you've got this big compensation package, 
plus you know paying the outsourced payroll and benefits provider once you sort of take that into account and decide that you've got enough money to hire people in the US everything else at least when it comes to setup is kind of a rounding error right like the banking fees you know tend to be pretty reasonable i mean sometimes even de minimis the business insurance my business insurance friends tell me that you know unless uh, the company's doing something particularly risky. You're probably only looking at maybe a few thousand dollars or, or so more above what you might have already been paying. There are tax accounting and legal packages for initial U.S. setup that are you know generally done on a fixed fee basis and are very reasonable, right? Again, I think companies get sometimes get scared off by the cost of, of going to the U.S. And I'm not saying that that's right or wrong, but I, what I do want to highlight that the real that the the real higher cost of going to the U.S. initially is the higher cost of employees you know, in the round. So with employees being a large part of the upfront cost, how do you think about the cost basis as the company's scale? Now, as the company scales, there are a range of other costs that are greater in the U.S. For example, you will generally consume more professional services in the U.S. as you go along than you in the U.K. and Europe. Part of that is the fact that the U.S. operates on a 50-state plus federal overlay system, which makes everything a little bit more complex. It's sort of halfway in between trying to cover the entirety of the EU at once on the one hand. That's probably the most complicated, right? And then on the other end of the spectrum, let's say the four parts of the United Kingdom, which is all ultimately the, the same country. That's the other end of the spectrum. The U.S. is kind of, I would say, halfway in between there in terms of com complexity. That means that there's a lot of logistics and admin that you have to deal with. And that leads to just, frankly, more professional services that needs to be consumed. There's also the dynamic of the U.S. litigation environment, which is much more robust than it is in the U.K. and Europe. And that also leads to, I would say, consuming more professional services because there's much more of a premium placed on avoiding disputes, on taking advice on a problem avoidance basis in the United States, whereas in the UK and Europe, it might be more typical for certainly at the startup scale-up stage to be thinking about taking advice at a problem-solving basis. I want to come back to something you mentioned earlier as well. So Delaware obviously is kind of the go-to for a lot of businesses. Can you go a bit more in details about why there's less friction and also from an investor standpoint, why that may make sense for, for you know the corporations themselves to be headquartered in Delaware as the parent company? Yeah. So. You know, I, I think one of the things about Delaware is that everybody around the United States is familiar with, you know, Delaware law, Delaware rules. It's a major corporate, I mean, it's kind of the major corporate center in that context. And, and it, it just provides certainty when negotiating contracts, when, when negotiating, you know, corporate documents, it creates certainty with the other party that might be negotiating that they kind of know what they're getting into. They know what the rules of the road are, right? The decisions of the Delaware courts are robust. There's a well-developed body of corporate law there that creates predictability and certainty about doing business in Delaware. I think that's really what it, what it comes down to. And that extends to commercial contracts in the way that Delaware ends up being a, a great compromise. Let's say if you're in New York negotiating with a California company, and each side is going to want to have the home court advantage, right? The New York company is going to want, want New York law. California company is going to want California law. It turns out that they're both incorporated in Delaware. That's a nice, easy compromise. And then they can move on to other contentious issues. But you especially see it, the, the benefit of the predictability and the certainty when investors are looking to invest, right? Because I, I think it is fair to say that the entire U.S. venture capital ecosystem is built on a foundation of investing into Delaware corporations, right? 
asking a U.S. VC to invest in anything other than a Delaware corporation does inherently insert some friction into the process. It's just that some funds are more comfortable with that friction than others. And in general, the later stage the company is, the more comfortable investors are with the friction of investing into a non-Delaware corporation, right? So in other words, if you're going out to raise money in the U.S. as a seed stage business, it's, it's going to be much harder to resist not having a Delaware parent company than if you're going out to raise as a Series C or Series D stage business. But again, as a default, American investors like the predictability and certainty of knowing exactly what their rights are as a shareholder in a Delaware corporation. That's really what it comes down to. Yeah, that makes sense. Switching gears a little, one of the other big considerations with the expansion is IP registration, right? So would you say that most companies, when they expand into the US, that should be one of the first thing that they think about? Yeah, you know, I think the two main areas of IP in this context are going to be trademarks and patents, right? And trademarks and patents are generally geography specific. In other words, a UK patent or a patent registered in the UK doesn't automatically protect you in the United States. Like you have to extend to the US and, and, and apply for, for registration in the US as well. You know, I, I think the, the main considerations, let's say on the patent side, are simply when you are filing patents, do you think that there will be upside in having protection in the US? And I mean, the reality of it is, is that the US has the most patents in, in the world, like just because of the size of the economy, the benefit that you can have as a patent holder to having protection in the United States is generally more substantial than, than just about anywhere else in the world. So yes, I mean, not only is, is patent protection, let's say a core part of US expansion, if patents are core to the business at all anyway, Again, many types of tech businesses, let's say B2B SaaS businesses, it would be, you know, it's not necessarily that common that you're going to have a big patent portfolio. But if you do have a big patent portfolio and you're expanding to the United States, most companies that we see actually would have thought about U.S. registration long before operationally expanding to the United States. They would have thought about it at the time of the patent application. Hey, you know, would there be a benefit to being protected in the U.S. as well? And oftentimes the answer is yes. That's actually very important to think about. And what about trademarks? Trademark is different, though. Trademark, of course, is protecting the name or, or the brand of the company. And usually that becomes most relevant as part of the company's expansion. And we see some companies, let's say, get out ahead of it and decide to try to protect the, the trademark before they go to the U.S. But a lot of the time, the thinking about trademark protection is, OK, I'm building the business now in the U.S., what do I need to do to make sure I'm protected? I need to make sure that my brand is protected in the U.S., right? And also, it's not just an offensive approach, which is I want to make sure that I can protect my brand against others. It's a defensive approach, which is I need to make sure nobody else is already using something similar to my brand in a similar area of business because what the company doesn't want to do is spend all this time and money setting up in the U.S., only to get, and even worse, run a promotion, run all, all the PR budgets, about yeah. all the marketing budget, right, about launching in the U.S. And then it gets hit with a cease and desist letter from a company saying, I understand you've just launched it in the U.S. under this brand. Welcome to the U.S. I'll see you in court. Right? And I'd assume, you know, we were talking about earlier what's more vanilla versus what's more complicated. I'd assume that's a relatively straightforward process, right? It, it is. Um, it, it's nuanced, but it's straightforward. Here's why I mean that it's nuanced is that... First of all, unregistered trademarks in the United States do receive protection. That's not always true in countries all around the world. But in the U.S., if you use a mark or a brand 
and you don't register it, you are still able to protect it against companies that, that come after you, a, after in time than you, and use something similar in a similar area of business, right? Those won't necessarily be picked up by just running a trademark search on the Patent and Trademark Office website, right? The other thing is identical brands can coexist, right? Think about in the U.S. we have Delta faucets, we have Delta Airlines, we have Delta Petrol or gasoline, right? Um, those are three different companies, but they can coexist because there's no, as they say, the term of art is likelihood of confusion. There's no likelihood of confusion among those three. And determining whether or not you are applying for a mark that is or is not likely to cause confusion is something that generally requires a trademark lawyer. All right, so we know where we're incorporating. We know how we go about IP and trademark. Um, one of the places where, you know, Europe seems to be ahead of the US, and so I'm curious how you view startups entering the market is GDPR, right? So everything when it comes to data protection, the US doesn't have GDPR per se, but it has things like CCPA in California and Canada has the Quebec Privacy Act. So there's a few different areas there. Would you say that European startups are relatively bulletproof if they're already GDPR compliant or they actually need to adapt quite substantially to regulations in the US? Yeah, I wouldn't say that they're bulletproof, but they're in really good shape. Yeah, because GDPR is obviously a very rigorous data privacy regime. Interestingly enough, for the most part in the United States, data privacy is handled on a state by state basis. You know, the CCPA that you refer to is, is a California state, state law. I mean, each state has its own data privacy rules. There is some data privacy law at the federal level. Um, HIPAA is a good example, which covers the collection of personal health information. But for the most part, data privacy in the US is handled at the state level. The way that most companies will, will, will deal with it and the way that, that law firms will advise on it is, is to sort of advise in, 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 as an amalgam right, of laws. In other words, in other words inter think about the US from a data privacy standpoint as the most rigorous standards across all 50 states. Comply with that and you'll be generally fine. And yeah. the good thing is that if you're GDPR compliant, you're in great shape for complying with the different state rules around the U.S. Now, the U.S. is different, but it, it, you know, it's a little bit of minor surgery as opposed to blowing everything up and starting over again. Fantastic. Um, and then one probably of the meatier areas to go into, and, and you definitely double-clicked on it earlier, is everything around employment law, right? And so... Once again, 30,000 foot view, what are some of the biggest differences that you would see between Europe and the U.S. and that founders should be aware of on that front? Yeah. Employment in, in the U.S. is generally employment at will, which is that for better or for worse, employees can be made redundant with no notice generally, right, for no reason and with no severance payment, right? Uh, that is highly unusual right, relative to, to most European countries. The nature of the agreement between the employer and the employee is very different. Technically, there's no obligation to have an employment agreement, right? You could call me up tomorrow. You know, if I, if I was back in the U.S., you could say, Dan, I want to hire you. And I would say, sure. And I start working. You know, I'm deemed to be an employee, right? That's usually not the case generally in most of Europe. Now, there is a benefit to both sides of having a formal agreement in, in place. But those agreements typically look very, very different than what you will see in the UK and Europe. I mean, I regularly have companies come to us and say, we would like you to Americanize our 
French, yeah. you know, employment document? And the answer is no. We will give you a U.S. We will give you a state-specific U.S. template. Because, we'll throw in then the garbage and start from scratch. I mean, which is no offense to the to the one you've been using previously. No, no, no. It's just it's just not at all what would be appropriate or expected in the U.S. market. And what about if founders come to you and ask, you know, why can I just hire contractors and keep that flexibility mm. so that way I have kind of arm's length? What do you advise them? So working with contractors in the U.S often a great idea, but the important thing that companies need to recognize when they go to the U.S. and hire contractors is, as we always say, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's a duck, even if you contractually stipulate that it's a goose. Yeah. In other words, sure. you can call an individual a contractor and you can have a beautiful legal agreement written up saying, you will always be deemed to be a contractor and never an employee. But if, for example, you call them CFO, <laughs> right, and they work yep. 50 hours a week for you and for nobody else, and they've got business cards that, that say CFO of the company and all of it, and they look like an employee, then under U.S. tax rules and laws, they are almost, they're very likely going to be deemed to be an employee, right? And the particularly tricky bit with that is that each state's rules are different as to what constitutes a contractor. For example, in California, you know, it, it's actually fairly challenging for somebody to be deemed to be a contractor rather than an employee, whereas in, in some other states, it's a little bit easier to have somebody be deemed a contractor rather than an employee. So what we usually recommend as a practical matter is that rather than say, I'm going to go hire contractors and go do that, that say, okay, I want to go hire somebody that ideally I'd like them to be a contractor. But here's what I'd like to have them do, and here's what I'd like their title to be. And then run that by someone who, you know, an employment lawyer or otherwise in the U.S. who can say, yep, given the state that you're going into, that works, that'll be a contractor, or no, there's a high risk that that'll be deemed to be an employee, at which point you either change what they're going to be doing, or you decide to bring them on as an employee. That's a, that's a great segue into something, once again, you mentioned a bit earlier about professional employee organizations or employers of records. Um, you know, as you said, this comes after you've incorporated. This is one of the last phases is you're looking to hire people. How do you usually advise executives about which one to use? And then do you refer them directly to the right ones? You have partnerships. How do you think about this? Sure. Let me lay out the distinction between a professional employer organization or a PEO and employer of record, which is over an EOR, and apologies for all yep. the, the acronyms, right? So a, a PEO is an outsourced benefits and payroll provider that co-employs the employees together with the U.S. company. Again, typically a Delaware subsidiary, right? In other words, it is a joint employment arrangement between the PEO and the, the U.S. company so that both are technically the employers of the individual. Now, the agreement between the employer and the PEO is such that the PEO's ability to control the actions of the, of the employer are very, very limited. Basically, the PEO is there just to provide outsourced benefits and payroll, but the benefit of it, the upside of it, is that you can leverage the PEO's economies of scale. Many of the bigger ones will have a million, two million employees. They get a much better deal on employee packages, right, like benefits packages, and the like, then you would as a startup hiring, let's say, three U.S. employees and going to market and trying to get health insurance for them, right? And it's just also nice to not have to reinvent the wheel for a small handful of, of employees and rather outsource it entirely. 
An employer of record service employs the employees for the company. In other words, they are not the employees of the subsidiary or the parent. They're the employees mm -hmm. of the EOR, of the employer of record. And in that regard, all of the obligations of employment are outsourced to the EOR, and the EOR has a contractual arrangement in place um, with the parent company, typically, right? And EORs work great. The only, the only risk there is you need to make sure that the individuals wouldn't be deemed to be employees. You can call yeah. them an employee of the EOR, but you have to make sure that the relevant state, the relevant U.S. tax and, and legal rules wouldn't override that and say, actually, those would be deemed to be employees either because they're seniority or otherwise. And then if we think about some of the, once again, the, one of the last things you mentioned in your introduction, the ESOP and the share options, right? Some European companies might be tempted to use their local valuation. So say kind of the HMRC here in the UK. Um, obviously the US has its own system, 409As, that usually differs. Can you just walk us through what some of these differences are? Yeah, so it's very common, certainly in, in the UK where we see this a lot. When, when you have your, your ESOP plan, let's say at the, at the UK limited level, you're often able to get a discount on fair market value when, when pricing your, your options. In the US, the four, it's called a 409A valuation, which is, which is a valuation that is compliant with US Internal Revenue Services standards, the US Tax Authority's standards. And that you will generally see little, if any, discount. So, and it's really just tied to the fair market value of the company. So it's very common to end up in a position where you have a higher valuation and a higher strike price in the U.S. versus the U.K. or, or, or Europe for, let's say, employees who came in at exactly the, the, the same time. That's just part of running a transatlantic business. And the other thing is that a 409A has to be refreshed periodically, either every 12 months or in an intervening valuation change event. Like, for example, if you go out and do a fundraise, you're going to need to get a new 409A, even if it's within 12, 12 months of the last 409A. Yeah. And would you say that this would generally lead startups to give more stock options to U.S. employees so that their upside is similar? Yeah. The strike prices are different. Yeah, I mean that the, the whole issue can be can be managed because also the, there's a, there's another issue that, that arises with to some extent the US tax treatment of options in a non-US company isn't as favorable to American employees as the tax treatment of options in a Delaware company. Mm -hmm. However, that could be managed by just simply grossing up the, the employees so, so that, that they end up in, in the same place. This can all be managed. And I mean, we've seen hundreds, if not thousands of companies, um, startups and scale-ups yep. coming out of the UK and Europe and making this work for, for US employees. But as a takeaway, I think the big things to realize is the 409A is something that needs to be taken seriously. It's one of the, it's one of the key diligence issues that late stage yep. investors and especially acquirers will, will look at when, when evaluating the company. Yep. And also that Americans tend to be a little bit more savvy on average about options and a little bit more interested in getting options than is typical in around the UK and Europe because there have been generations after generations of American startup employees who have seen massive exits and done yep. very, very well. And, and I, that's coming in the UK and Europe, there's, there's no doubt, but it, there's just not the long history of employees having that kind of upside 
in the UK and Europe as there is in the US. There, therefore, in the US, there's a greater appreciation of what the possibilities are. All right. As we wrap things up, any parting pieces of advice or thoughts for the founders that might be listening to this? Anything that people usually underestimate or that should really be top of mind as they're thinking about their own expansion? Yeah. No, I, I think the most successful companies that we find going from the UK and Europe to the United States, I would say are, are, are the ones that either go early or go late. And here's what I mean by that. Going early is that the company decides fairly early in its life cycle that it wants to optimize the product or service offering for the U.S. market. They put a management team on the ground in the U.S., but the founding team, let's say, on the ground in the United States. They might keep you know, engineering and other back office functions in the U.K. and Europe. It's just it's more, more cost effective. But they will have the front end of the company in the United States optimizing for the U.S. commercial market, optimizing for the U.S. investment market right, or investor market. Uh, raising money as if they were a homegrown U.S. startup because they essentially are in some ways a homegrown U.S. startup. And then they scale the business from, from there. The other type of company that we find to be very successful are the ones that build the foundation of the company in the U.K. and Europe. They raise their initial rounds from the U.K. and Europe, and eventually they get pulled into the U.S. by customer traction and user growth. They prove out that there is a market for their offering, and then they scale the business in the United States. And to take that a step further... If at some point in their life cycle, and this is not every company, I just want to highlight this in advance, if at some point in their, in their life cycle, they come to the conclusion that the potential upside of the company is to actually become a market winner or the market leader in the United States, then at that point, they may end up putting management on the ground, the CEO or someone with CEO authority on the ground in the US. Because at that point, once you decide that winning the US market is the priority, it's very hard to win the away match of the U.S. market while keeping your best players back at home, right? And, but, but that's a decision to be made as, as, as the company scales. It's the companies that, that sort of find themselves in the middle that I think struggle the most, which is they start in the U.K. and Europe, and before they really have proper product market fit and a strong foundation built in the U.K. and Europe, they sort of get pulled into the U.S. by you know, a little bit of, of the, the bright, shiny ball, as it were, <clears throat> right, of the U.S. market. Like, it's really exciting. There's a lot of money to be made there, both commercially and from an investment standpoint, right? But it's hard to scale a business simultaneously on both sides of the Atlantic that hasn't built a strong foundation on either side of the Atlantic, right? Absolutely. I mean, interestingly, half the guests that I have on the podcast actually did one side. So are starting early. The other half is actually the exact other side and there's no kind of in between. So couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for joining me today. I think this is absolutely terrific. You've managed to make all kind of this nitty gritty groundwork actually really interesting. And so uh, very much so appreciate your time. And I, I hope you enjoyed yourself as well. You got it. Thanks for having me. I'm your host, Mike McGraw, and it's been a pleasure bringing you today's episode. Thank you so much for joining me and see you next time.